Welcome to ACE Audio, the podcast that supports, educates, informs, and motivates manual therapists around the world. Welcome to another episode. My name is Bodine Ledden, and today I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Kieran Richardson, where we dive into the use of manual therapy and the hands-on, hands-off debate. This episode provides a ton of value and clinical takeaways from Kieran. Kieran is a specialist musculoskeletal physiotherapist and the director of Global Specialist Physiotherapy. He has formally mentored many healthcare professionals over 13 years, consulting to a number of private practices, offering second opinion, as well as providing professional development lectures, tutorials, and education. Kieran lectures at courses and conferences nationally, and he also works as a seasonal academic on the postgraduate master's program at Curtin University. This is an exciting episode. Let's dive right in. Uh, Kieran, thank you so much for your time joining me today on this podcast. It's great to be speaking with you, Bo. And although I feel a little bit insecure because you're looking very lean and your face <laughs> is looking perfect, and I'm feeling a bit chubby because the camera adds pounds, but <laughs> it's just it's just good lighting. That's all the, the difference is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Kieran, today we're going to talk all about a bit of everything, I guess, but but manual therapy, this is a real interesting topic, um, the whole hands-on, hands-off debate. And, um, you know, you're you're a bit of an advocate for, for manual therapy and, and uh, uh, someone who's seen both sides of the argument. So, so what are we, what are we talking about with this whole hands-on, hands-off debate? Yeah, look, for me, it's kind of a non-issue, Bo, and it's always been a non-issue. Some patients like and will need manual therapy for a period. And then there's some patients who don't like and don't need manual therapy at all. And then it's just trying to find out how much we use it and when we use it in clinical practice. But then you have voices on social media, particularly, and this is shown in research that this is what's driving a lot of the narratives independent of evidence. And so a lot of physios and healthcare professionals, allied health, who use manual therapy are swayed by these narratives as opposed to what the research actually shows. And so I guess I've kind of been dragged into this conversation as someone who uses manual therapy selectively. I only see patients a day a week. Most of what I do is training health allied health and healthcare professionals and I do telehealth two days a week but I still see patients in clinic and I'll use manual therapy on most of them at least for a short period but it just doesn't seem like it needs to be this toxic aggressive debate even I think the word debate is almost wrong it's the discussion should be it's interesting isn't it it's sort of this what you can only do one or the other and and this sort of integrated care is is non-existent anymore and you know it must be so difficult for for new grads coming out sort of you know whether or not they've been trained in in manual therapy and to what level in their undergraduate program but then I mean, it's it's a it's a scary world. Social media, when you you come out and think, well, what do I do in practice if a patient's got pain? Uh, 
you know, where do I stand from manual therapy versus exercise versus education? Where does that all fit? Yeah, yeah, you're right. And so with the training, that's almost a whole nother layer. So some of the universities, at least in Australia, have, I guess, abandoned teaching manual therapy in detail. But, But others are doing just as much, if not more than ever. So a lot of that comes back to who's running the course and what their biases are. But from a research point of view, there's been no studies that have debunked using manual therapy or it's not even about that. It's more what we're saying to the patients when we do it and and um, the justification as to why we're doing it. I think that's important. But it is sad for new grads if they get this very, very aggressive hands-off messaging and then they may even feel guilty or feel that they have to tell the patients that. And then if the patients from Australia, there's a couple of papers that show that the patients that are quite recent that show that the patients expect manual, they want it. <laughs> and, and there was a bit of a uh, piece expose piece, if you want to call it that in the daily mail in the UK, where these patients were giving their feedback of physiotherapy, particularly and that in the UK, and they were saying, they don't touch me. Uh, they just give me a sheet of exercises. And so when you, when the, what falls down to the most important is the patient. And when they're giving that kind of case example research, it's, it's hard to argue with that and then feel a bit frustrated with the whole issue. So is that true patient-centered care if we're not taking our patient's expectations on board? Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. And the old, the old model, the Sackett's model of clinical, um, it was the patient expectations and, and what they wanted and preferences, the clinician preferences and ex- expectations and their background and training. Then what the research evidence is, and this is fourth circle that we're now considering now, which is the in-clinic, the in-clinic findings. And so if you have a patient that has stiffness in a particular body part that's sensitive, they have a lack of range of motion, they're scared to move, their muscles are guarding, that is the clinical, those are some of the clinical reasons that you could use manual therapy as a part of treating someone. It doesn't have to, in fact, I never give manual therapy, like the patients don't just walk in I start putting my hands on them without saying anything and they just walk out. <laughs> There's always some conversation that goes along with that supplemented with exercises that ideally maintain the effect that's improved in clinic. It's pretty straightforward. And so, but then there's also cases where I'll, I'll, the patient doesn't have a, a lack of range of motion. They've, they've got very low levels with any levels of pain. They don't particularly need or want manual therapy. Those sorts of cases, I'm not going to be using it. It's it doesn't. I don't really see why that's so hard. But to try and even discuss that sometimes online, particularly, it can get quite dramatically. It can the heat can turn up for for whatever reason. Yeah, and that's so important, isn't it? Understanding the role of of manual therapy, and you know, as, as you mentioned there, you know. 
increasing someone's range of movement or restoring their range of movement or providing short-term relief. That's the real value of it. And I think that the whole narrative surrounding manual therapy has changed and evolved. And we know that what we're not doing now, and um, you touched before on sort of the the language and what we say and how important that is. Um, So I think, yeah, really using manual therapy for what it's good for. And it's not saying that um, we shouldn't be using anything else or we should only be using manual therapy. It's about using it as a, a part of, a, a, I guess, multimodal care, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's a really good, a really good blog that was written and supported by um, the, in JOSPT, it was last year, something along the, if, if the listeners can't find or viewers can't find it, I can pull it up. You just Google JOSPT, reconcept- I think it's Reconceptualizing Mulligan. And basically, a lot of the uh, ideas behind uh, Mulligan technique have they're still they're still valid. It's just probably the gift the gift is the same, but the packaging is just slightly different from when it was invented, say thirty forty years ago. But that that doesn't mean that we just cast it we cast out manual therapy because we realize the mechanisms are highly complex and almost irreducibly complex, but it doesn't mean it doesn't work. And so that's what they were talking about in this blog. And then the, the uh, Mulligan Practitioner Society came out and said, yeah, look, we support that. This is, this is great. And so if, if we take a balanced approach to manual therapy, we can, the mechanisms are also the same, the, the same as if we give someone exercise. It's this, we, we're using the same, enacting the same endogenous pain-relieving mechanisms as we would give someone with exercise. I think the problem comes if the patients get the idea that they have to keep coming back to us like bone setters to set their bones back in place. That is an old school, archaic and ascientific methodology. And we can't be doing that to make patients passive dependent. That's where it's, that's where we're not saying that we're saying we want to use manual therapy for a few weeks and then potentially intermittently as a part of their care, as we're pushing the patient to self-management. It's pretty straightforward. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's so important, isn't it? Not that we're putting things back in place or things are out of alignment or we're breaking things up because we know that is just not what manual therapy is doing. And, you know, you, you mentioned before about, you know, someone who might be in, in quite a bit of pain, they might have some fear avoidance with, with movement. Um they might be a bit apprehensive. There might be a bit of, of, of pain there. So we can use that manual therapy to, to decrease their, their uh, fear of movement and progressively get them back into more active care. Um, so I think that's that's such an important part of manual therapy, not just to say that, it, that it's ineffective or that, um, that it creates reliance or it reduces someone's self-efficacy. What do, what do you say to uh, those sort of uh, terms? Uh well, what I say is show me the evidence that it that it does do that. I, I'll ask I'll ask clinicians, I'll say, can you show me the papers that are high quality that suggest that patients become passive dependent by using manual therapy? And we can't find any because there isn't any. <laughs> and so it's it's this assumption that that's what will happen. Now, in clinical reality, I do believe there would be some clinicians and professions that that can happen, 
and and we want to call that out. But it shouldn't be a major part of what we're focusing on. I guess me and you have spoken before. And the thing that frustrates me so much in healthcare is the dominance of and over-medicalization of patients. Mm. Because, because at least in Australia, if you want to get massage, if you want to get manual therapy, if you want to get clinical dry needling, you have to pay for that out of pocket if you've got an acute injury or even you know, near chronic injury. But you can get inject injectables. You can get pharmaceuticals. You can get a scan. And you can pretty much get an elective surgery if you want to, federally funded with item numbers. But you don't get the same provided by manual therapy, which is a problem. And there's a couple of different body – I mean, this is a whole other topic. But if we, if we talk about there's – there's a great paper from 2017 that compared doing clinical dry needling to – to steroid injection, and it was the same. So lots and lots of people are getting steroid injections for for greater trochanteric pain syndrome, but they don't get told that they're going to get just as good an outcome. And what I find in clinic, this is a level one study, and so what I find in clinic is when I present that patient, that information to patients, they're like, oh, yeah, for sure, I'll, I'll do that first. I'll much rather choose that, but they don't know because they're not given the option because the system's set up wrong. So I, in my opinion, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, we, we talk about opioids for back pain, unnecessary surgeries. This is the big topic. This is what we need to be jumping up and down about as allied health and, and backing ourselves in. That's the thing that really gets my, grinds my gears, is especially on social media. Physios particularly, they're eating themselves as a profession, just beating the crap out of how poorly they believe the profession is when we've got so much to offer patients first. But it, that that messaging is not what we're focusing on, as I see it, and what what is happening in reality. That's such a good point. You know, all of this, um, you know, backing behind pharmaceuticals and even surgeries and injections and even imaging that that's often unnecessary. And the more that we know now, it's sort of like yep. well, a lot of the these surgeries and injections could be avoided. We could oh. provide patients with the right information and the right management in the short term that improves long-term outcomes. Absolutely. One of my favourite shows that I've seen in the past year was on Netflix, Painkiller. I would highly recommend. Have you seen it? Yeah. Wild. Absolutely wild. That's How is this not front-page news everywhere? We should be – and in the show, he gets back pain and then ultimately ends up going down that path of opioid addiction and what then follows. And – Hundreds of thousands of people have ultimately committed suicide because they were given opioids for something that they could have easily had treatment provided by someone who is non-medical that could be just as effective. And so it's like we're spending, and I, and I see these different influences on social media, they're spending a lot of time hauling out the BS. And there are these fringe rogue practitioners that are like cracking people's necks for heart attacks and um you know aggressively pushing someone into like post-operatively into severe amounts of pain which is obviously all this stuff is abhorrent but it's it's not the dominant issue and so that's where we need from my point of view that's where we need to be continually pushing that message within allied health but also to the general population and i think because they're seeing that and they're thinking well I don't want to go to 
I don't want to go to someone who uses manual therapy if they're going to do that or if they're going to if they're just going to try to keep getting me back because that's not what most of us are doing. So, yeah. Yeah, that's such a good point. Uh, I think um, it, I guess the narrative around manual therapy has changed a lot. It's It has gone away a lot from that sort of putting putting bones back into place and, and the breaking up the scar tissue and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but you're right, there's still those, those outli- outliers and that cops a lot of attention and then yep. manual therapy as a whole gets, gets, gets a really bad rap. It does. And it is an easy, it's almost a political, it's almost an, like a political tactic to use isolated cases to then brand everything one certain way or view if there's like a certain people group you don't like you use one fringe case and then it's very provocative and then you use that to then brand everyone like that and that can be a way to especially with attention spans lessening with the dumbing down effect of mass media it's harder for us to 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 think deeply about stuff because it just we're just so persuaded by that early and so, yeah, it's it's something that definitely needs to shift and it's good to be a part of and connected with people like yourself who are committed to presenting scientific, factual, balanced information to actually help patients. Yeah, and you, you touched before on, on a, a good uh, research paper, a level one article around GTPS and corticosteroid injections. Um, what do you say to people who say there's there's no evidence for manual therapy? What they just say there's no evidence. Yeah, there's no evidence to support the use of manual therapy. So well, my my favorite thing to do because I almost I almost quit physio. Honestly, it was about twelve years ago. I just was a bit disillusioned in myself because I wanted to know the direction of where I was going to head in a career. But I was very fortunate to be mentored and trained by some of the best manual therapists but also researchers and clinicians within physiotherapy and so like i was going to go into law and i was considering also going into medicine and in law one one strategy you can do is you can shift the burden of proof so it's like so someone says there's no evidence for manual therapy so what i do when they say that i'll go okay so can you tell me the evidence behind what you do with patients and then when that what i get is like some blank stares or, oh, nothing works. Uh, I just educate them and tell them that they're going to get better in time, which is complete BS. <laughs> so, like, then I've got them on the back foot and then I really press. So that's probably the first thing I do is I try and shift it. So I go, okay, so you're telling me there's no evidence for me. Before I answer that question, can you just tell me the evidence behind and the high-quality evidence behind what you do with patients? And it gets pretty it gets pretty quiet pretty quickly because if we want to take manual therapy to task, we have to take everything else to task. And manual therapy, depending on the condition and depending on the body area, has just as good as research as anything else we would do. And so it's quite awkward when you, and I, the probably from an in-clinic, an in-clinics summary is I see these patients who have been told these these kind of narratives and they're disillusioned and they want someone to help them on their journey. And so they've seen these kind of practitioners who've abandoned manual therapy and then they're just like wanting care. But also what I'm finding interesting, Bo, is that there's a lot of 
lot of healthcare practitioners now that have heard that haven't left the the professional allied health and then are realizing that maybe they've gone astray and moved back more into the middle, which is what we're suggesting. And they're realizing it can work. So from a research point of view, I've got a, a diagram infographic and I can post it in the show notes of what it essentially across the body, if we're talking specific and non-specific conditions, neck, shoulder, elbow, hip, knee, ankle, low back, we can, we can find at least level one RCT and systematic review evidence that manual therapy at least works short term. So there's that's easy, but it's just then what is going to what is going to satisfy someone who is anti-manual therapy? Nothing. They'll never change. They will die on the hill of manual therapy not working. And so I've had some of these conversations with um with anti-manual therapists. And then I say to them, look, because there's this, there's this funny slide I can also sh share with you. It's from, it was from the Overdiagnosis and Overtreatment Conference in, I think it was 2019 by Teppo Jarvanen. And he was the surgeon that debunked uh, subacromial decompression. He showed that it's no better than placebo. And he pulls up this slide at the start of his talk and it's got like 20 different points as the common uh, rebuttals against his... And they're like, the study was too small. The the uh, selection criteria was wrong. There was the wrong race, wrong nationality, the wrong device that was used. And one of the, my favorite points is multiple unspecified reasons. <laughs> so some people will just, no matter what you say to them, you can't persuade them because in their mind, they're committed to this view. And so there's some of those like clinicians that I will, I will try to show them what I do in practice, but it's just... It, I'm talking to a brick wall, so I don't want to waste my time. But I'll always try to help someone, at least on the journey. But if they're not really willing to change, then it's hard. That was a very long way of answering your question. but <laughs> Yeah, but, I mean, it, it's, again, understanding the, the role that manual therapy has in, in the overall picture. And I, I know an example that um, you told me was that, you know, in your second opinions, if someone comes in with knee pain, what yes. if I press in this direction? Does that make it better? No, let it, let's press in the other direction. Yeah. Does that allow them then to, to be able to go about their, their normal activities, their exercises? So we're using that as that modifier of pain in the short term, right? Yeah. 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 And that's the thing. Like, so I guess I'm probably, I use in different contexts. So you'll have I'll do telehealth sessions. I'll do face-to-face -face sessions. In both settings, I can try to persuade someone who's got high fear, like cognitively, in the discussion at the patient interview at the start. I can try that, but it may not work with everyone. So inadvertently, the, the clinicians who are anti-manual, they kind of become one-size-fits-all. Mm. So they, they're trying to like beat the patients down with better education. But what if I do a manual technique and the patient changes, their movement changes, and then they go, okay, I feel, I'm feeling great. That's, that's excellent. What does that mean? It, it just gives you another strategy to use. And so I do that also in telehealth. The patients will be struggling with pain. I'll get them to get on the floor, do some patella manipulations, soft tissue massage, get up. They can then squat. They then realize, okay, maybe this pain isn't structural. It's not something I need surgery for. for. So I guess if I'm mentoring clinicians, I'm trying to show them that you can actually, you can have 
tools in your kit that will actually help patients in different scenarios. So it's it's going to help you and patients. So you don't feel like you just have to try to use education because it does have its limitations in, in different scenarios. Yeah, and it's an opportunity to change that narrative, isn't it? You know, like you said, if, if they believe it to be structural, that's an opportunity that you can use a manual pressure, a manual technique to change their pain. And what does that tell you about what's going on here that, you you know, surgery may not be indicated, you know? That's, why, that's how I use it. So I'll have these patients now, Bo, and I'm quite direct with them. Let's say, for example, a patient with shoulder pathology. They'll go to lift their arm. It's painful, classic painful arc. I will do a shoulder symptom modification procedure of some way, shape, or form. They'll then have full movement. And I will look at them and I'll say this, and especially if we then follow it up with repeated efforts, say a repeated MWM or something for the shoulder, I'll say to them, this is great news. This You are someone who's likely to do well with physiotherapy first. You don't need urgent surgery. You don't need a scan even. You don't need injection right now. You don't need to go on pharmaceuticals. And so the patients hear that and they're like, that's great. So it's it's you can do it there and then and educate them and you're laying out a treatment plan. It doesn't mean those things aren't may not be necessary in the future. You've still got those as options as well, but there and then you can prove it to the patient. And I think that's we need to be doing more of that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you can see how how that's I guess if someone's perceiving manual therapy to be purely passive, then that's probably not correct either. Because as you sort of mentioned with the MWMs, like if we can modify someone's symptoms, integrate some some active movement, that's sort of that bridging the gap between passive through to active. And then those repeated efforts afterwards, you know, there yeah. could be some neuroplastic changes that are occurring oh, yeah. as associated change in beliefs. Yeah. So a number of things that can go uh, go together with manual therapy. Of course. And there's a, I can't remember the author's name, Source Amnesia, but there was a paper that spoke about uh, manual therapy is always an active. It's always active because you're interacting with the patient. I don't know any clinician that I've ever mentored that literally just mobs the patient or manips the patient or massages them with saying nothing. There's always some interaction, even brief. And so it's I I that is not dead time for me. After I've done my subjective, done my physical, and I'm getting to treatment, it's like this is I've got to be in, involving what I'm saying. And there's a there is one paper uh, that speaks about when how we're communicating when we're doing the manual can actually improve physical outcomes for straight leg raise and so it is it is important that what we're saying is de-threatening that it is factual but also communicated at a patient level it doesn't have to be this you know if you're starting to talk about substance p and descending inhibition pathways you've probably you're probably going to overshoot in terms of your communication to the patient so yeah yeah, perfect. So what are you sort of, uh, what kind of advice would you give to someone who is in that situation that sort of does, that don't know what to believe uh, around the use of manual therapy, the hands-on, hands-off, um, you know, where does it fit in? What, what do you, What's your advice to those practitioners out there? Well, look, I, first of all, we, everyone is growing and learning. I don't think anyone has all the answers. And so 
I would be wary of of social media accounts and clinicians who present aggressive uh, one size fits all approaches. I think that's a problem. Okay, I think it has to be based on what you're doing with patients and how you when you work through your career, you have to base things on evidence. You can't just start doing some, like, I don't know, you, you bring in like a salad bowl and just start rubbing that on a patient's back. Like <laughs> you just can't do things randomly. I can picture that. <laughs> okay. I don't know how that came into my mind. Maybe I'm hungry. But like there has to be some basis for scientifically as to why you're doing And there's a lot. And then avail yourself to counter perspectives. That's one of the best things that I did in my career and still do in, in life. Like I have friends and who think different to me. They have quite strong opinions. And I like that because it helps shape how I see things and view things. And in fact, I seek it out because I don't, there's an old counseling technique called the Johari window, where basically it's a quadrant and there's what you and I can see in one square boat. Then there's what I can see that you can't see. There's what you can see, what I can't see. And then there's the unknown is the other quadrant. And so the best mentees are the ones who are seeking, there's some research for this, they're the ones that seek out external counter perspective. They're actually the most competent in reality. And so, yeah, I just, I found that by getting, I mean, I'm biased because I run an education and mentoring company, but I, I like clinicians and they tend to be the ones who are the thought leaders because they, they've really shaped and honed their views um, and then because before you put them out there, you've got to make sure that you've tested it robustly through the fire. So that's probably that's probably some of the advice that I'd give. And when it comes to manual therapy, it's it's again, like you don't want to have a clinician that only uses manual and you don't want to have someone who's not using contemporary explanations and you don't want it to be a dominant strategy for 50 sessions with a patient there should always be a transition. The natural transition is always the physician heal thyself, patient heal thyself. We're trying to move them out of our care eventually, unless they want maintenance, which is fine for some patients. But like for massage, you know, myself personally, in the past year, because I've been doing more travel and teaching, my neck's been sore. I go for massages. I love it. feels good. So you don't do your three sets of 10? I do that as well. <laughs> but sometimes it's still sore. So like, and I've got an adjustable desk and I'm standing up and I'm doing my neck exercises, but I still like someone working on it because it feels good. It gives me relief. So I, I think, yeah, that, uh, to me, it's keeping, keeping yourself accountable. The clinicians that kind of go rogue, they're probably, I think the ones that, and then often they end up leaving the, a professional allied health. Yeah, it is, it is key to try to, to try to have someone who can, check your biases as well as yourself. Yeah, some great points there. And, you know, when we look at pain and how complex it is, it's difficult to then try to fit everything into a box, right? We've got to keep keep our, our eyes open. And obviously we all have biases and um, it's, as, as you said, you know, challenging ideas and beliefs and, and biases helps helps broaden our understanding. Um so I think that that's a really important part, but we can't just be be so fixed in one 
sort of in one bias and not be open to anything else. And, and that goes for, you know, whether you're only manual therapy or only exercise and education. So it's about sort of that integration. Um, it is, it is. And like that also applies within um, professions because I do quite a bit of work. Into, I like, in fact, I like speaking because I'm a specialist physiotherapist, right? So I love speaking to physios. It's very easy for me, even the skeptics. I like speaking to them. I find it it's another level talking interprofessionally. That's probably more of a favorite for me because it's like, how do I present what we're doing in a balanced way whilst also not filleting some other profession? So, for example, I love exercise physiology. Some of my best friends are exercise physiologists. I use them. I refer on to them. Same with orthopedics. Even though I, I, I believe a lot of orthopedics is, over, is overdone, I still believe and know there's cases where it's necessary. It's the same with sports medicine. It's the same with psychology. We are a part of a team. And so I think I think it, I do believe in an ideal world it's possible to work in a team. And I've got some, we've got sort of organic things that have happened where I where I work in Perth, like where you have like-minded GPs, like-minded exercise physiologists who realize that they have a limit. Every, all of us have a limited scope of practice. And so if you it, it, we can, it is possible to work interprofessionally for the best outcome of a patient. That's how I see it. Yeah, that's so important, isn't it? I think. <laughs> Uh, if we could all come together and understand uh, things, how different professions can work together, understand what the evidence actually says and not just discard evidence that you don't agree with, um, that's that's a that's a healthy healthcare profession, right? <laughs> of course, of course. And so like I've I, I, I think that's because if someone's got a fracture, I don't they don't need to see me. They can see if they've recently got a fracture, they either need to see a sports doctor or an orthopedic surgeon to manage that and to, to get a, an opinion on that. That's not that's outside of my scope. If they've got if they're suicidal, they need to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. That's not that's outside of my scope. It's the same with, when it comes to pain. You're going to have varying uh, degrees of where it fits within allied health manual therapists, and you've got someone who will need pharmacological. And so it's always just trying to, to see for the patient that you're looking at in front of you, what is my role here? What percentage is my role here? Am I the treating therapist 90% here or am I just a, a part team member? 20% is my role. That's how I, that's how I think it can look and probably how I try to practice. Yeah, and that's the importance of, of practitioners being able to recognize who may fit within a manual therapy treatment paradigm versus some who may not benefit so much from manual therapy and need to go to to elsewhere, exercise, psychology, whatever that may look like. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And so that's always in the in my mind. It's in the forefront of my mind, actually, especially when I see the patient first. And then as I'm progressing them, if they're not going as per what I would had communicated early in my management plan, and there's some roadblocks. In fact, early on in, in the management plan, I call them exit points. In recent, in, in uh, specialist training, we call them exit points. So it's like, okay, if we get to six weeks and we're still not getting anywhere, we're probably going to dangle the carrot that is the steroid injection. We're going to dangle you starting some some um, some psychology. So because it may be that you need this, it may be that you need to see an orthopod at three months. So that's, I think it's better to communicate that earlier so they know that we're not just 
trying to will them over the line if it's not working. Yeah, so that's a that's a nice one. You know, if there's not the the desired response or progression that that you would predict in that short term, that's when we've got to look at what what else is going on. What other interventions could be indicated here? Whether it's completely different intervention or the co management. Yep. Yep. So yeah, I think it's it was one of the best pieces of advice one of my mentors mentioned to me. He said that he said, "Look." Kieran, you, 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 there's there's times where the patients are beyond our scope. And so if you've got a hunch of that early, you're better to communicate it earlier. And the patients appreciate it. And so what I, a phrase that I use with patients, Bo, is I'll say, if I can help you, I'll tell you. If I can't help you, I'll tell you. And either one, I'm going to let you know as soon as possible. And it really gets the patients on board. And, and you're being more now, as you get more experienced and trained, you can be very frank and direct with the patients because they prefer that and so you don't want to see a patient unnecessarily but you also don't want to send them off if they're unnecessarily so i think communicating that sooner rather than later is best yeah that's some more great advice so it sort of ties into my next question then what what about those patients who sort of are uh i mean they really want to continue to come back for, for manual therapy and they want to make this a, a regular thing. What do you sort of say to those who, who may not benefit so much from it or um, that they just like having regular manual therapy treatments? That's fine. They can keep coming back. <laughs> I've got no issue with that. It's a tiny percentage of the patients I see. They will like maybe one to 3%. And I, they're doing an exercise program and I'm reviewing their exercise program, but they f- they believe and are getting in reality a benefit from the manual, whether it be every four to six weeks or every two weeks or whatever. But it's not a huge percentage of what I do. But for some patients like me when I'm going through large periods of st- stress or work where I'm sitting at a desk a lot or traveling a lot or um sustained periods of driving i will pull the trigger on getting a massage because i just don't want to have to think about it and the exercises may not be that effective for me at that time and so i'm happy to do that and i have patients that would prefer to do that in fact i've had some cases where the the patients are not ready to start a full-on exercise program i give this one example of a high-powered consultant that i saw he was in charge of 60 staff working 16, 17 hour days. He literally said to me, Kieran, I'm not going to do the exercises. I'm not going to do them. I want you to fix me. And he was quite a type A personality, very intelligent and almost lawyer-esque in how he would shift everything back onto me. I said, look, that's fine. We've got to try and get you there eventually. I saw him regularly for three months. Once it hit three months and his 10-year history of chronic low back pain, his pain was significantly better just from manual. With one or two exercises I've managed to get him to do at home, he then hired a personal trainer at three months because he wasn't ready then. But if I had pushed him, he would have just nicked off and gone elsewhere. And so I think sometimes the patients will be more inclined to do an exercise program in time. So if we're if we're very green around the ears, we can like be forcing these patients into self-management in the first couple of sessions. They are not ready. They don't want that. They want the other things in our toolkit. And then we can move them in time. So that's probably 
that's how I see it. And I, so I don't have any problem with maintenance. I don't rush people into self-management, but I'm looking to direct them into self-management. I communicate that early. And then, yeah, as long as they know that it's going to be short lasting and it, and, that, and they're fine with that, it's, it's up to them. Yeah, that's some really good advice. I think, uh, and I've heard you talk about this before around, uh, I guess, a lot of practitioners are at the risk of under-servicing. You know, you see someone once or twice and it's sort of like, all right, well, you should be self-managing this condition where, you know, it may be that they just need some more regular treatment for a period of time. Yeah, yeah. That's a big problem within physiotherapy. They, the, the, the physios are uh, moving these patients into a gym-based environment very quickly and the patients don't want it, aren't ready, they're too sore, they're not comfortable and they're just trying to smash them with heavy weights, heavy deadlifts, speaking more specifically. I see that a lot online and it's just, it's not, it's not reasonable, it's not, it's not going to work for these people. So I just think... It's okay to take our time. From a research point of view, prognostically, stuff generally takes longer than what we think. And so, yeah, I'm very happy to work with patients over time and and they seem to be happy. And I think it's it's always about keeping that person front and centre. Yeah, but under-servicing is there was... Um, a paper that was released recently speaking about acute low back pain that a lot of patients, we used to think 80% is fixed within uh, uh, within the first three months, but that's doesn't say, there's some recent research that suggests that's not true. So you may be, try, by trying to push them out at three months or discharge them by three months, we're, we're under-servicing them, yeah. Kieran, you've given so many uh, clinical pearls here. I think there's a lot that people can take away from this and, you know, understanding that the role of, of manual therapy and where it fits in and, and um, you know, that, that it's, it, it shouldn't be, as you said at the start, it, it's, it's a non-argument, right? Um, so <laughs> so yeah. we should use it for what, it, what it's good for and integrate that with, with overall care. Um, Kieran, thank you so much for your time. No worries, mate. Yeah, I love it. I love talking about this. And and I really do believe that we can kind of put this topic to bed and say it depends. It's it's not it's not an all or nothing. There's there's always gonna be there's gonna be hostile people that are manual therapy cures cancer, and there's gonna be hostile people that are like you're assaulting patients if you use manual therapy. We're, we are not either of those. We are saying we're going to use it as a part of a package of care to grade patients towards managing their own life better. And I think you pretty much can't go wrong with that. <laughs> Love that. Hey, Kieran, where can people find out a bit more about you? If they want to follow me for professional content, they can follow me on LinkedIn, Dr. Kieran Richardson. If they want meme content, they can follow me for glo at global underscore specialist underscore physio in uh on instagram and uh if they're interested in manual therapy training we do do that it's global specialist physio.com forward slash manual therapy and we have online courses and two and two-day workshops which we're happy to run for clinics and clinic groups not just physiotherapists for allied health and 
Yeah, I just think it's not gonna. Uh, there's we're not manual therapy's not dead. It's gonna live on, and there's gonna be people who will use it selectively till the day we die because it works. Yeah, and manual therapy's not dead. Live on manual therapy. <laughs> awesome stuff, Karen. Thank you so much. It'll be on my tombstone. No, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Cheers. <laughs> cool. 